Welcome to Season 2, Episode 82 of the Bandit About podcast series. Joining me in the engine room this week is an Adelaide drummer whose name has been mentioned several times in the past by other guests. I'd almost given up trying to contact him when, thankfully, one of his former bandmates from the 80s, Stuart Day, managed to get hold of his contact details for me. And I was thrilled to find out that he was very interested in doing an interview with me as he'd enjoyed listening to the one that I'd done with his drum teacher from all those years ago. But before I introduce today's guest, it's first time for me to play the Bandit About theme song, which was written and recorded for the Bandit About podcast series by the very talented Catherine Lambert and Michael Mitzi Bryant. pleasure to introduce today's guest, John Zack. Welcome, John, and thank you for making time to chat with me today. You're most welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Wonderful. Okay, let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? I'll tell you a few bits about my childhood because it's probably pertinent to my career. I was born in Adelaide in 1962, Queen Victoria Hospital. I grew up in Norwood. Before Norwood was trendy, it was a pretty trashy place back then, full of immigrants. My parents were Polish immigrants. My mum survived the Dachau concentration camp and her first husband was a violent alcoholic. She came to Australia, married to that husband with my sister and my brother was born in Adelaide. My dad was a Polish immigrant as well. He met my mum when she left her first husband. She escaped him. He met her in Adelaide, probably at one of the Polish functions back then. My dad was captured by the Germans during the war and uh, put to work, hard labour, and when they realised, he was a lot smarter than me, my dad, when they realised he was a smart cookie, the German regular army gave him a university education, which is uh, very interesting. So he came to Australia with a uni education and got his pilot's licence when he got here, and he was an aerobatics pilot, of all things. Anyway, he adopted my brother and sister and married my mum, of course, and I was born, my brother was 10 years older than me and my sister was 12 years older, so I sort of kind of like you know, the mistake, but I wasn't really a mistake. Mum wanted Dad to have a son of his own, or son or daughter. I was born with very severe form of uh, bronchial allergy, which was asthma really, but they called it bronchial allergy back then. There were no inhalers or cures or anything. The GPs back then told my parents that I'd be dead or on an iron lung by 16, which is fairly infuriating for them. So they hunted down different doctors and whatever, came across an Austrian doctor one day who said that my condition was diet-related and I went on a very strict, bizarre diet, bizarre for back then, and recovered dramatically. So I grew up in Norwood. We had a huge block. I grew up with dogs, cats, chickens, goats, rabbits, cockatoos, lizards, frogs, anyone 
growing up in Adelaide at that time knew that people kept a lot of animals. So it was like a farm, a small farm, but we were a kilometre from walking distance from the city. Walk into Limewell Park or the race course, Victoria Park race course, take three minutes to walk there and just a few more minutes to walk into the city. So I lived around the um, parklands there and loved dogs, grew up with dogs, absolutely, absolutely love dogs. Any sanity that I have is because of dogs. And so I wasn't a great student at school, terrible at sport because I still had bouts of sickness, which is a long story. Ever, you know, shifted off my diet, I would get sick again, but I got much better. I'm, I don't have that sickness anymore. I'm cured. Did either of your parents or anyone else in the family come from a musical background? Not really. Mum had a lot of musicians in the family where she grew up and mum could sort of fake her way through a few things on a drum kit or played mouth organ, believe it or not, of all things. Mm. Dad wasn't, but both parents had great taste in music. Dad loved opera. He was a big Neil Diamond fan. Mum just loved all kinds of ethnic music, you know, and she had no prejudices there. She just loved Weird music, the weirder the better. Plus, she was a big Elvis fan, Tom Jones, Engelbert Humperdinck. We loved a lot of mainstream music as well. Nobody played musical instruments. My brother and sister attempted to play, you know, guitar and piano, I think, when they were growing up, but they gave it away early. My cousin, my cousin Ed played, he was a banging piano accordion player. Other cousin, Christina, played guitar, but no one sort of shone as musicians. So I wasn't really influenced by anyone in the family, but I just naturally loved music. I used to record television themes onto my little mono tape recorder. People remember them? Yeah. Remember them? You'd you'd get the tape recorder with a little microphone attached and Mm -hmm. just wait for the show and record things from the music shows on TV. Television themes. I just love television themes. Okay. John, what or who inspired you to start playing drums? I think when I was in high school, I started playing drums about 1976. So my first year at Norwood High was 1975. And I think meeting other kids who were really into music, that really lit the flame. And I thought I was going to be a singer initially. And probably when I discovered the band The Sweet, that really sort of, you know, my interest in music exploded then. As I said, I thought I was going to be a singer, but then drums just sort of, naturally kind of took my interest and about a year later, 1976, my dad enrolled me for drum lessons at uh, John Reynolds Music City. I started drum lessons at John Reynolds. Uh, My first teacher was Robert Lloyd. He was a great teacher, but I was only doing uh, a half an hour lesson a week privately. I think dad, my dad was a really interesting guy. I love my dad, missing dearly. He could sort of see I was a little bit frustrated, but he also liked to test me. As I said, I wasn't great in school and I certainly wasn't good at sport. So he really wanted to see if I had the right stuff to continue with music and because, uh, you know, it was a waste of time otherwise. It wasn't cheap music lessons back then. So he took me, just quite by surprise, he took me out of lessons with Robert Lloyd and enrolled me with Jim. And he was sort of planning this in the background. So one day he just said, look, you're, you're going and starting lessons with a new teacher. I was a bit upset about it, actually. So I went down to John Reynolds anyway and went to this shed out the back of, it was the warehouse behind John Reynolds where they kept all of their stuff. And I didn't realise that I was going to an audition to take lessons with Jim. I just sort of rolled up and he stood me up in front of the class and 
never met this guy before. And he said, okay, son, um, play me some rudiments. And I went through my rudiments. I've got to, I've, there's a disclaimer here. I've got to say this. Jim wasn't mean. He's my, he's, he's the reason that I made it in the music industry. The reason why I had a musical career, I owe that to Jim. But he didn't beat around the bush, which is what I love about him. He was a pure logic. He was like my dad. He was my second dad, really, my drumming dad. Anyway, Jim watches me go through my rudiments and he, t- he turns around to the rest of the class. There's three or four other guys sitting there and he goes, this is what I mean by a complete lack of technique. <laughs> my face must have looked, it just must have gone bright red. I nearly cried. And he said, so do you want to learn how to play drums? I said, yes, of course. He said, listen listen to my instructions and follow them exactly. Anyway, he ran me through some stroke heights and then ran me through the rudiments that I played when I first came in again. And then he turned around to the class again and he goes, there we go. And now he's playing with great technique. And he turned to his um, diary and he said, nine o'clock Saturday morning, which of course was devastating. I loved sleeping in on the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) That meant catching a bus into town, you know getting up early and catching a bus in South like school. And I was horrified. And he said, it's a two-hour lesson and you'll be in a class of them four or five. So that was the beginning of lessons with Jim. Did you study music at all when you were going to Norwood High? Yeah, I did. Uh, this is a good story. I got an F for music. Music was, I mean, we could talk forever about subjects and school. Music wasn't a great subject. Back when I was in high school, it was kind of, there was very minimal involvement with anything to do with any commercial music or mainstream music that kids were interested in. Everything was classical. And if you were really lucky, the teachers would play a jazz piece occasionally. But it was all pretty lame. So um, it was difficult to really get interested. As a matter of fact, uh, that's just reminded me, I actually had a go on a drum kit in music lessons at school. Of course, that, you know, that was another spark that got me into drum lessons. It just, it didn't feel easy, but it felt logical. But my first music teacher gave me an F and said I would never amount to anything musically in my life. I kept the report sheet that he wrote that on. I didn't do anything with music in school, but I did get involved in the school productions. I loved that, doing the interview productions and but that was acting and singing. I loved it. But never did music in school again after that. Everything was with Jim. At, I will also say that when I took lessons with Jim, we accelerated so far beyond anything that I was doing in school. It would have been pointless doing music lessons at school. With Jim, you just learnt at a lightning pace. It was scary. It was really scary. But it was fantastic. Awesome. What work did you do when you left school? That's a good question. I was working before I left school. My parents got me a job at the Polish club, the Dompolski Centre. And back then you could work as a waiter and even as a barman for community clubs. I don't know if it was legal or, or illegal. It probably was illegal, but it was one of those things that no one ever followed up on. I worked as a waiter and then later on they promoted me to barman. And So when I left school, a lot of odd jobs. I worked for um, a drummer in Adelaide, John Rose. John Rose had a steam cleaning business. John Rose was in five-sided circle. I used to work part-time for John Rose, as well as one of my best friends, Neil Wilesback, lived next door to John Rose, and a lot of my musical friends I worked for John Rose. had a government job for a little while, but nothing that I stayed with for long because I was doing gigs from well before I left school. We got our licences when we were 16 back then. So Jim encouraged us to play gigs, but you know, I was already doing Dompolsky gigs and all kinds of things. And then when I got my license, there was more of that. So 
I mean, we, my friends and I, it was just there was something wrong with you if you didn't have one or more jobs. You know, we pounced on every opportunity to make money. And, of course, that would, you know, buy musical instruments, run your car. And, uh, of course, you know, we were already dreaming big about musical careers then, so you knew that you had to go out and play if you were going to be any good. Excellent. John, what was the first band that you joined? Well, as I said, there were community bands. I mean, I was in the Polish youth orchestra for a while. That was awful. That was eight or nine piano accordions, drums, and I think we had a guitar player at one stage. I left that. We did a few gigs and it really wasn't much fun. I'm probably really testing my memory here. I know I got a few odd gigs while I was um, taking lessons. I think Mick Hogan got me a job with a band called The Hot Boys and they were playing a, it was like a, a miniature big band, horn section, guitar, bass, drums, what was it, seven or eight piece. And the Hot Boys, we all played a few gigs. That was just a fill-in gig. Played a bunch of gigs at a little club that was on the extension of Rundle Street there in Kent Town. I can't remember what it was called. And shortly after that, I did an original project with a friend of mine from school, Dave Wills, who went off to tour with as a stage tech with Michael Jackson. And then I joined the first version of FAB, which was The Pits. Frank Castell introduced me to Stuart Day and Chris Woods, and The Pits was born, which became Red with Then Green, which became FAB, also morphed into Division 4. That was a mouthful. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Can you remember your first gig? My first gig. The earliest gig that I remember was playing with the Hot Boys because I was absolutely wetting my pants with fear. I think it was Mick Hogan that got me that gig, but I was terrible with reading. My reading was just awful. I got a tape with a few songs on it, and so I went into that cold and I was just frightened, fear. And I think it was bad, but it probably wasn't as bad as I thought it was. I guess that's my earliest gig memory. I will say that we also play. Taking lessons with Jim meant you weren't just taking drum lessons. You'd do a two-hour lesson every weekend or whatever day you came in. And then Jim ran ensemble classes and he'd just tell you a time. He'd say, I need you at ensemble class at this time. And you just did it. And if there were any performances or anything that Jim wanted us to be involved with, for example, we did percussion society demonstrations and whatever. Jim would rehearse us through that kind of stuff in his own time. And then we'd meet somewhere. It might have been a hall on one of the university campuses or sometimes we'd all meet at the Festival Theatre Plaza or somewhere amazing like that. We were so spoiled back then for venues or in the um, Festival Theatre Amphitheatre or and we would just play a demonstration, play Latin or jazz tunes and whatever. And as students, we'd play percussion instruments and whatever. So it was a lot of that kind of thing as well. Yeah. In the mid-80s, FAB had quite a bit of success, didn't they? We actually did. Not waving the flag, but we didn't really understand the level of success that we had actually achieved and how close we got. When you first got into the music industry back in those days, you were either naive to the corruption or you knew about it. I mean, corruption's everywhere. I grew up with a dad who explained every conspiracy in the history of the world to me. My dad loved talking about that sort of thing, so it was logical that it was there in the the music industry as well. Anyway, with FAB, we worked really hard. We did have a great work ethic. We got together and had weekly meetings. We rehearsed religiously. We played a lot of gigs. We used to bring in staging and spend extra money on production. Every gig was just the most important thing in the world to us. And so, and we're in Adelaide, of course. And back then, Adelaide may as well have been nowhere. Anything that was happening in Australia was happening in Melbourne and more so Sydney when it came to recording bands back then. 
So to get noticed by recording companies all the way back then, and we've got people like Andrew Peters and Bill Page back then from SAFM to think, pushing us, making people aware of us in the recording industry. And when they saw our gigs and saw how much effort we put into it, um, we inevitably ended up getting signed. I mean, it's complex the way we did get signed. It was RCA, but, but we managed to finance the recording of our first single and we found Eddie Rayner from Split Ends to produce it. We paid him out of our own pockets. So we basically gave a finished product, which was our first sing- single, to RCA. I think they called it a lease deal back then. And we ploughed into anything whatsoever that would promote that single. We did arts council tours where we went to schools and it was hard work. It really, really was hard work, but it was a lot of fun and that's what we wanted to do. And in the end, when it did all crumble, there was probably a little bit of relief from one point of view, but then in the years to follow, we discovered that we had almost tipped into the big time and it was just a bit of bad luck that really kept us from that next big step, which would have been a major deal. That's the nature of the recording industry, a lot of luck involved. Do you think that might have been different had you guys moved? Moved interstate? Yeah. I don't think so. I've had decades to think about this. Adelaide's a great place to be in a band. Adelaide's a great place. I love Adelaide. Adelaide died for a while when it lost the Grand Prix and sort of towards the mid-90s and a bit later. It died a bit as far as, you know, the entertainment scene. And that's comparing it to other cities. But in terms of being in a band and forging a band, and being able to rehearse and get to rehearsals. I mean, it's a horror story getting to rehearsals in Melbourne. Worse in Sydney. Adelaide's the best place in the world to forge a band. You've always got 2020 vision in hindsight, but I think looking back that we probably wouldn't have moved. I still think we would have based ourselves in Adelaide and we just would have gone to wherever we needed to go because there's no point moving to a capital city where you get raped you know, and tortured by outrageous living expenses. You can live comfortably. If you can live in the lap of luxury, that's what living in Adelaide is all about, was all about back then, comparing it to Melbourne and Sydney. I don't think we would have moved. I think we would have continued to base our activity from Adelaide, but um, we would have been doing a lot of moving around. I mean, years later, when I started touring in other bands, we didn't move out. There wasn't any point. And though we got a lot of smart-ass comments from people in Melbourne and Sydney, they all lived on the bones of their butts. They were poor. We would go home and live very comfortably, you know, and then just drive back over to do gigs or or fly. Okay. So where did you go to after FAB? FAB had, what would you call it, an alter ego. A singer in Adelaide, his name was Andrew Ward. I did a gig with him on Kangaroo Island, Warwick Landrew and Andrew Ward. We did a gig on Kangaroo Island. Warwick invited me to do the gig. I didn't know Andrew back then. We met, blah, blah, blah. We did the gig. We got stranded on Kangaroo Island. It went really well. When we came back, Got back to Adelaide. We decided to keep that band going. But Stuart Day got involved and we called that band Division 4. We paid a lot of FAB's bills. And Division 4 was a very, very successful cover band. We were kind of a joke cover band. That plotted along for quite a few years, side by side with FAB. When FAB came to a close, Division 4 continued on for a while. But I think we were all a little bit lost mentally after that. Stuart Day was, I think he was already playing in Spanky very much back then. Warwick went to a few Zepp Boys gigs and um, Warwick was a big Led Zeppelin fan. I only knew two or three Led Zeppelin songs back then. I liked Led Zeppelin, obviously. John Bonham was a great drummer and they were a great band, but they weren't at the top of my list. Anyway, Warwick mentioned to me one day that the Zepp Boys were looking for a bass player and a drummer. And to cut a long story short, we were offered a 
eight-week tour that looked like it was going to be a good earner, and we did it. So that's what I did. I moved on to the Zep Boys, and that went for about 11 years. And while I was with the Zep Boys, we did a lot of other projects as well. I ended up doing the Mega Boys, which was the singer from the Zep Boys, plus myself, Bruce Howe, and Rob Riley on guitar. Bruce Howe, was, he was in fraternity and was the bass player, musical director for the Jimmy Barnes Band. And there were hundreds of other projects around that time as well. John, can you remember your first major gig? The first gig that I did that really made me understand the potential enormity of a career in music was when FAB played with In Excess and The Models. The gig was called The Big Swing. It was in, what was the big oval in West Lakes? I think it was West Lakes. Anyway, we had 20,000 people there. It was called Footy Park. Footy Park, that's right. So um, that was In Excess, The Models, and FAB. I was there. Oh, there you go. There <laughs> I you remember go. it well. <laughs> there you go. That was my first taste of the big time. It was really scary. It was all, also a little bit of an anticlimax too because the crowd was so far away. I was used to doing pub gigs with people being two metres in front of us or standing right up against the, the front line. And all of a sudden we were up on this massive, massive stage with a sea of people in front of us. The closest person was uh, 20, 30 metres away. No, it was a great concert. It was a great concert. Look, that was the, I think that was the golden era of pub gigs and concerts. All of the big crazy stuff. Yeah. I remember that one very well. Awesome. Do you have a memorable gig story that you'd like to share? Oh, God. <laughs> Let me see. Uh, we had, um, when the Grand Prix hit Adelaide, we did a, and I was working in the Zet Boys and doing a lot of extra gigs with Rob Pippen. Rob put together a cover band for backing guest artists and playing heaps of, you know, Grand Prix-related music for the, I think it was the pre the pre-race gig at the convention centre. When we first started putting it together, we didn't understand how big it was going to be. They were going to build a stage. Drum kits were going to be appearing from under the stage. So um, that was quite an experience. And it was quite an experience on quite a number of levels because we had to commit about 42 songs to memory. So play with guest artists. We only got to rehearse with them very briefly on the day of the gig. Then rattle off a whole bunch of songs, you know, guest artists would come up and do a few songs each, and then you'd go up into a green room, and the green room was just full of people who were my idols when I was growing up. I used to see, I used to watch Russell Morris on Happening 70 or whatever it was back in those days. I was a kid. I don't really remember what I thought about it other than liking songs back then, and then all of a sudden there they were. We did the same the next year and there were more people and then other guests would roll up. Farnsey would be wandering around and cracking jokes. So that was kind of memorable because all of a sudden, poke your fingers, I was rubbing shoulders with all of the celebrities that I used to watch on Countdown. So that was pretty interesting. And then, of course, years later when I did end up doing gigs and tours with some real international celebrities like Graham Bonnet, Glenn Hughes, <laughs> oh, I've got a good story. I remember when Graham Bonnet came to Australia, like Graham Bonnet was in Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Bonnet was arguably the most notorious hard rock singer in the world. The guy's voice was just absolutely mind-blowing. Anyway, he ended up in Adelaide, broke, because he was taken to the cleaners by his management, which was, you know, we're talking about corruption in the music industry. Graham was a victim of it. Anyway, Pembo, uh, John Pemberton, the DJ, introduced us to Graham Bonnet. We ended up doing gigs with him. But when we were rehearsing, I used to go and pick up Graham Bonnet in my beaten-up old Mazda 929 wagon 
And we used to drive to rehearsals and Graham Bonnet used to tell me musical stories in the car. And one day he opened up his phone book. It's like if I was sitting around and I wanted to put together a joke phone book and just like write celebrities' names in there with phone numbers, like he opened up the book and there's Eddie Van Halen's number and Steve Vai's number and Elton John's number, right? And the Bee Gees. He's got the Bee Gees phone numbers in his phone book, right? And then later on, of course, we did gigs with him and strange people that just pop out of nowhere. There was a lot of that. I think that was pretty overwhelming, just seeing famous people all the time just appear at gigs. Doing biker gigs back then was also, you drive out into the middle of nowhere and there'd be thousands and thousands of people set up around a camp in front of this concert stage with concert production. You know, you'd be escorted in and out by bikers. It's a lot of good stories there. Helicopters suspiciously flying in and out of the properties. Now, let your imagination run wild. <laughs> <laughs> they were awesome. I mean, they treated us like gold. It was a bit scary. I remember when we were doing a tour with Glenn Hughes. Glenn Hughes used to talk about his experiences in the music industry and tell us about the excesses of people in the music industry. Glenn Hughes, he was with Deep Purple in the very early days. David covered up. A lot of people don't know that. And um, he would just list celebrities and tell us the dirt on them. And some of that was drug habits and their escapades and loss of fortunes. It was a bit like a lot of gigs where I don't know if you've heard of um, the documentary. It's like a, a mockumentary, really. It's called The Decline of Western Civilization. It's a little bit more serious than Spinal Tap in that they interview groupies and whatever. Glenn Hughes basically told us any celebrity, care to mention, Glenn Hughes would tell us the dirt on those celebrities. So that was pretty interesting. Then, of course, there was playing gigs with those sorts of people. That was fairly mind-blowing. Excellent. Now, you eventually moved to Melbourne. Yes, I did. I was with the Zep Boys for 11 years and that came to a close. Came to a close for me. The Zep Boys continued. Inevitably, I just knew that I had to move on. In 1996, Frank Corniola, who runs a music school and a drumming retail outlet in Melbourne called Drum Tech, it's really drumming central of Australia. It definitely was back then anyway. My friends from back in the 80s and 90s, Ray Deegan and Alex Deegan, had already moved to Melbourne and Ray Deegan was working at Drum Tech. He told Frank Corniola about me. Frank came to some, you know, my final Zep Boys gigs. He rocked up one day. Anyway, he invited me to do the Ultimate Drummers Weekend, to do a performance at the Ultimate Drummers Weekend in 1996. That was sort of scary, you know, in front of all of my drumming peers. It was really scary, actually. I felt like I dug out of water there. These guys were all monsters. All of the monsters of, you know, drumming were living in Melbourne. A lot of these guys were great fusion players and, you know, technical geniuses. I had to go up and do a performance on the same stage. Anyway, it went pretty well, all things considered. And Frank said, why don't you move to Melbourne? Or if, or if you ever do move to Melbourne, come and teach at Drum Tech. And, you know, I thought about it for a while and thought that's just a great idea. So I did. He became my, just as Jim was like my drumming dad, Frank Corniola became my drumming dad in Melbourne. His wife back then, Leslie, helped me build up my student body, drum tech, and that happened very rapidly. Then the gigs just started racking up in Melbourne and uh, there were years and years where I just went six, six days a week, seven days a week. I mean, the work was always there. You could work flat out 24-7 if you wanted to. That's why I moved to Melbourne. It was the drum capital of Australia and it was the very logical next step for me. Yeah. So what bands did you play with when you first went over? Okay, well, to begin with, it was a lot of fill-in work. So once your name got around town, people would just ring you up and you would rock up to a gig with no rehearsal, meet people and then play the gig. We were trained to do that with Jim. I never thought I'd ever see the day where 
I'd be doing that kind of thing. It's reasonably easy. You're familiar with covers that most people play around town. You're okay. You fake it to sure about things and just watch. There were lots of great players in Melbourne, so they'd sort of conduct you through things. Anyway, the first band that I joined that I stayed in for a long time was a band called Flame Trees, which was a Chisel Barnes tribute. That was a great band, full of absolutely magnificent players. I grew up with Chisel Barnes and it was good music to play. That morphed into another cover band, which used to be before I lived in Melbourne. That was called Scat. So the singer in Flame Trees was the singer in Scat and we became the new Scat, if that makes sense. So that was all covers. But then there were just hundreds of other projects. So if it wasn't something through drum tech, it was something from Adelaide. I still did a lot of gigs with Rob Pippen. Some of the big tours, like the um, Glenn Hughes tour, happened while I was living in Melbourne. So I'd travel back. And then a lot of the orchestral projects that we did with the Zepp Boys, we did the first ASO version of orchestral Led Zeppelin. I came back from Melbourne to do those. And then that became, we did the Pink Floyd shows and the Queen show. So I was bouncing between Melbourne and Adelaide. As I said earlier, when you mentioned the interview the other day, I was trying to think of all of the various bands that I played in Melbourne. It's hundreds. It feels like I've been here for 100 years because of how intense the music scene was when I got here. Eventually, like all things, it slowed down. And oh, I did a lot of original projects. I did a project with Alan Catlin from The Sharp called Altar, an original project, and we went through an incredible recording deal fiasco there with Sony in Europe. I did a bizarre original project called Subsonic Symphony. We went to America and Europe. We were signed in Benelux and Gas, that's Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. Uh, then we went to Los Angeles and did a showcase gig there in front of all of the majors, which was just the most unbelievable experience seeing all of these people that I've watched on TV at a showcase event we recorded it, we played music for them, and then we walked, we left Los Angeles with a handshake deal back then. This is a good story. I forgot about this one. When I was in, when we did that showcase, we had a um, manager here in Melbourne, and whose name will go unmentioned, and a manager in Los Angeles. His name was Don Sorkin. I love Don. Great guy. Don Sorkin knew everyone. Long story short, he knew everyone. Very well connected in Los Angeles. And the woman that ended up signing us was a lady called Daphne Zeman. And she sounded like Jar Jar Gabor. She lived in Beverly Hills. And she had this accent. Hello, Schmitty. She was that kind of woman. She sounded like all of my Polish relatives. After we did this showcase and she saw how interested all of the reps from all the major labels were, she just pounced on us and went, that's all I wanted to see. So she invited us to her mansion in Beverly Hills. We got into Don's Chrysler and we drove to Beverly Hills. We were tailed by a police car as we drove in there because we the band's image was pretty severe. We were like this tech, gothic techno sort of image. Anyway. So what are you doing well, driving around Beverly Hills? Right? Am I driving around Beverly Hills, right? And Don, had, Don had a really nice car, but it just wasn't Beverly Hills standard. We got out of the car. We weren't allowed to walk on the nature strips because they were all manicured in this particular part of Beverly Hills. Anyway, this huge gate opened. This mansion was just mind-blowing. We went inside. We met Daphne. And Daphne just basically... And I read us the right act on what the ins and outs of the recording industry. I loved her. I got along famously with her. She was, I wasn't afraid of her. Our manager, she was shriveling with fear. I must admit, the room we were in was pretty intimidating. We were in her lounge and her lounge had, she flicked a switch on the wall and the paintings disappeared into the floor. It was like Thunderbirds. 
And this 35 mil projector screen, full-size projector screen starts rolling out of the roof. And we were sitting in these huge chairs that would swivel. And, you know, I figured that that's why the chairs swiveled. So you could all see the, the projector screen. There's a TV screen, bigger than any TV screen I'd ever seen in my life before. And at one point, Daphne's talking, and, and I was looking at this mansion out in her backyard. So she's living in a, in a mansion, but there's also another smaller mansion in her backyard. Mayor, who lives in that mansion, Daphne? She goes, nobody, sweetie, that's the guest house. So that was Beverly Hills. We left her house that day with a handshake recording deal, a major recording deal. On our way out, she invited us to a party and she handed me an invite. I opened up the invite and it's got people's names in there like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Meg Ryan and all of the famous actors of the time. And I said, is this real? Are there all of these people going to be here? She said, yes, Shviti, and I want you to be here. So that was Daphne's house and that was Subsonic Symphony. Anyway, Subsonic Symphony morphed into another band and that was Melbourne. Just this confusing mess of original projects intertwined with, you know, doing cover gigs. So what happened with the recording deal? The recording deal, okay. So with our, we had a great manager in Melbourne from one point of view. And even in the uh, in the FAB days, we were very aware of the fight for control over artists. So, you know, we understood very early that recording contracts were really, recording companies were really just finance companies. Their interest rate was, you know, 10 times the rate of a regular finance company. It would have been cheaper to have gone out and got a car loan to try and do your recording. Musicians are idiots. We don't know that. Recording companies pull strings and in different ways. And of course, often if things don't work out, you don't have to pay some or all of it back. Anyway, managers fight for control. So we knew that our manager in Adelaide might not be our only manager. You know, and money gets split up along the way. You know, sometimes managers will split their management earnings with a manager in a different territory, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes you pay a second amount of money to a secondary or other managers in different territories. Mm. So anyway, we got to... Europe and we got to America, European deals didn't go too badly, but they were finalised. In America, Daphne Zeman made it very clear that uh, she would be in control in the US, which was logical. Mm. She understood the territory and she was connected there. She was running her own label and her label was a caretaker label for other labels like Prince's label. That's really complicated and I won't get into that. She had a very solid base. She also, we had a really, really, really strange image. And as much as people in Australia were laughing at it, America lapped it up. But it was pretty extreme. I had a piercing, I had a bolt between my eyes, the bridge of my nose, with spikes poking into my eyes. We were a pretty extreme looking band. There's a video of our showcase. Anyway, Daphne said, look, the, we're going to have to tone down that image as we go more mainstream. And we all agreed to it. But I remember looking over at our manager then and she was just fuming. Her face was all red. I even remember sort of shaking my head and going, whatever it is, can it? You know, this lady's just phenomenal up to this point and she's just suggesting a couple of things that the members of the band, myself and Tian and Jack, totally agreed with. We were pretty happy about that. Mm. Anyway, we came home and we were just elated and we kept our mouths shut and all that was left was for our manager to go back about a month later and finalise all of the paperwork. Got goosebumps just thinking about it. She went back and got into a, a big control fight about the image and what kind of control Daphne had in her own territory. And the fight got out of hand and she refused to go forward with the signing of the deal. Oh, my God. And it was just devastating, absolutely devastating. 
And she came back and started telling it to us, telling us this news like it was nothing. I left the band right there and then. So did the guitar player. Yeah. Years later, we got back together and resurrected not that project, but did something different and that went really well. But no big American deal. We almost made it, you know. That was the world of management and leaving your career in the hands of other people. Mm. Very big lesson. Definitely. So what was the next project? After that, I think things started slowing down on the music. So I was getting old, pretty old then. I'm 60 this year. It's probably important to know too that when I was sick, when I was a child, I um, suffered bad lung damage and my hearing was damaged. I noticed that, uh, especially when I was playing with sequences and using in-ear monitoring, that I was more than just a little bit punch drunk from volume. After gigs, I was just deaf, deaf as a post. I went and had my ears checked. Audiologist said, well, you need hearing aids to protect your hearing. So I've got Suffered moderate hearing loss. I wear in-ear hearing aids, which help me with sitting in meetings with people and talking on the phone or doing like doing the interview. I don't need to wear um, hearing aids when I'm listening to music or playing in the band. Playing in bands, I generally take them out and maybe put in musicians' earplugs. But to answer the question, I decided to slow down my playing a little bit, and I even um, decided to uh, take up a friend of mine. One of my best friends was working for an event company in Melbourne called Kojo. Kojo are in Adelaide. My friend Daniel Tippett was running Kojo events here. So I started doing events because if you run, if you've been in bands all of your life, running an event is just the simplest thing. You know exactly what to do. It's easy. Helping him with event management was really easy. So I did a bit of that. And then I also ended up working, I did some outdoor events with the city of Stonington, which is the council for Malvern Turak. And then I ended up working for the city of Stonington running functions within the city of Stonington plus the town halls. So Malvern Town Hall and Pram Town Hall. I actually really like that. You're quite anonymous in the job. It's it's Mm. fantastic. You're treated brilliantly. You're in and around entertainment. They do outdoor events like I would work on Pets in the Park, for example, which was just walking around an event all day, marshalling an event and patting animals, patting chickens and geese and dogs. And it was brilliant. So it was a brilliant organisation to work with. I saw a lot of the corruption surrounding the dilemma that we've been going through in the last couple of years uh, through that. So I slowed down musically, but ended up working with some different people. I started working with a Melbourne singer. His name's Damon Stone. Damon was in a band. When we used to tour the Set Boys, we used to see Damon and his band Body Motors all the time in Perth. Damon's a magnificent singer, just absolutely magnificent. He plays Guitar, bass, a saxophone, flute, and sings. I did a lot of Queensland gigs with Damon, early days on in the resort islands, and then mainly in Early Beach, and then a lot of cover gigs and the strange sorts of cover gigs in Melbourne and in Queensland in millionaires' mansions and stuff, that kind of freaky stuff, lots of those. We did one a couple of weeks back in Sunbury in a huge mansion. Damon's a great guy, so I did Damon's original project. That's a band called Stone. And, of course, in the last couple of years, with the restriction for gigs, or the odd gig here and there. It was very enjoyable and my hearings improved dramatically, but there were still, you know, enough gigs popping up here and there. How did the pandemic impact you living in Melbourne and being a professional musician? As a professional musician, it ended all gigs. Melbourne, the... Regardless of what you think about the pandemic, I don't want to get political or influence people in any way, shape or form, but I can tell you what I saw. I can't unsee what I saw. The lockdowns in Melbourne were devastating and it was the end of everything. 
end of a lot of people's businesses, end of a lot of people's careers. At 20, 30% of all of the new businesses that opened up around where I live in Melbourne, which I live in Reservoir, so Preston Reservoir, there are all of these funky bars and pizza joints and, you know, restaurants opening up closed. Heaps of them, just doors, doors closed. No entertainment, none whatsoever. Well, I was still working for the city of Stonington part-time and my job didn't stop. So I would be driving to work to Malvern Town Hall through a ghost town, just driving through empty streets. It was like being in the Amiga Man. Mm. It was horrifying. And I remember all of my friends saying, I've still got my work at the city of Stonington. It hasn't changed. And then um, we started, we went from running functions, which is great fun, running a market at Malvern Town Hall or, or an ethnic music event or working on events to suddenly doing everything COVID, setting up testing stations. So we were in and around them constantly. I don't know if it was the same whether you had it in Adelaide. We had cleaning stations set up where they would have teams of people walking around the city, wiping down traffic signals. And it was just mental. Mm. As I said, I'm not going to get into it too far, but I saw the corruption there. Probably something I should mention, it actually accidentally started a few businesses. This is weird. would be interesting to, to some people. MySpace. In the days of MySpace, you used to be able to send out invites to people from your MySpace profile. And then when MySpace died and we moved to Facebook, I mean, you were still able to do that sort of thing. And a friend of mine who was a promoter in Melbourne uh, got me working for a whole bunch of pubs, promoting their pubs, music events in their pubs. At one stage, our biggest client was ALH. That was extremely successful, this business. We saw the corruption in social media, especially Facebook. In the very early days, we saw how ruthless Facebook was with shadow banning people for whatever reason. And we could see this strange political bias, which really didn't mean anything to me back then. I've become my dad in my later years. I am into politics and whatever, but back then I wasn't that interested. Seeing people blocked and cancelled on social media was horrifying. Well, anyway, when the whole COVID fiasco hit, I saw that through my business, and I felt like I was living in the book, 1984. Then later on, when the immunisation started at the end of last year, I witnessed corruption that I never want to see again for the rest of my life. I remembered all of the things that my dad said about the rise of tyranny when he was alive, and I never really took much notice of it back then, but inevitably... Even that ended towards the end of last year. I was expecting a financial crisis since 2008. We had the last financial crisis. I prepared for it with the music industry collapsing and everything else collapsing in Melbourne. I've been quite okay. I'm quite, quite happy to have lots and lots of free time. But getting back to the original question, how did it affect the music industry in Melbourne? It's destroyed it. I think it's going to take years to repair the damage that was done here. We really need some new thinking government to resurrect the industry here, but it's a crime. Crime against humanity. Were there any positives that came from the lockdowns that wouldn't have occurred for you otherwise? Yeah, I have to be careful how I say it. I didn't agree with the lockdowns. I'm staunchly against a lot of what the government has done. But without going into that, it used to take an hour and a half some days to drive 16 kilometres from my house in reservoir to we would get pummeled at the town halls when we were really busy and then I'd go out and do gigs on the weekend and I was tired a lot of the time and my joints were getting very sore got pretty bad knees suddenly going to nothing just absolutely nothing and being in a department that once had 10 people that was just whittled down to three all of the part-time was sacked it was pretty quiet 
And I mean, physically, I recovered quite dramatically in the last couple of years. I really enjoyed the peace and quiet of the lockdown. I didn't enjoy the lockdown. I want to stress that. I think it was a crime against humanity. But the calm was something I really enjoyed. I love walking my dogs and you could go anywhere. There were no crowds anywhere. When I was young, I could have very easily have become a Buddhist monk, I think. I really don't mind being alone. Maybe I discovered myself early. I don't get tired of being alone with, with my dogs. So I think probably developed very positively as a human being in that time. And now it's complicated when I had to explain how I, I was expecting a big financial meltdown, which we're coming up to anyway. I was expecting that since 2008. So I prepared for this. So I would have quite happily retire now, never go back to work again. It still is quiet for me. My days are exercising and walking my dogs. That part of the lockdown, I really enjoyed. But my heart is very heavy and sorrowful for the thousands and thousands and thousands of hardworking average everyday people whose lives have been destroyed. Hard to say that I enjoyed the peace and quiet. You're also carrying that guilt. Well, I can't do anything about it, obviously, but I'm certainly not going to shut up about the corruption that I saw, that's for sure. Let's let's say I saw corruption with a capital C and I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. My parents were under Nazi rule and I had decades of stories from my parents and my direct family about what happened in Nazi Germany. And I read the book 1984, and you never believe that anything like that would happen in your own life. And then you see it happening before your very eyes. And incredibly, if you speak up about it, you're attacked by people. But that's just the way it is. Definitely saw a lot of people attacking others for having opinions. With this censoring business on social media, I mean, in the early days, things that were really upsetting, if you were banned and you took advantage of a you know, MySpace or Facebook offered some sort of function or whatever, and they would shut you down without any warning or explanation. And then having affiliations with certain movements or whatever, you'd be shut down or shadow banned. Seeing that explode was horrifying. I've seen a lot of people lose their access to their Facebook and stuff like that. And when you're trying to run, I work on a lot of different band pages and stuff like that. I'll withhold some of my thoughts because it was impacting my ability to reach. Any kind of normal communication. We ran a huge number of profiles in this business that I started. Really simple process of you know managing business pages. There was nothing underhanded about it in any way, shape or form. Good business, very honest. We had some very big clients wound down quite naturally. After a while, it got really difficult to run business profiles. It was very, very time-consuming and there were all kinds of restrictions on Facebook, you know, as to how many invites and whatever you could run out. So it just became hard. We were quite happy to eventually close that down. I still had gigs and teaching. I didn't care. I was glad. So I kept two or three clients I've got now. Still having a whole bunch of profiles under my management, right, that people left with us. They would stop using our service and they just went, oh, you can have the profile. A really interesting thing happened at the beginning of the whole COVID. I would watch videos and posts being banned in real time. So someone would state something and go, hey, this is really funny. We saw X and Y happening. And I would see this across, say, 16 or 18 profiles. And then I would just watch that post get deleted from 16 or 18 profiles. Like this was early days. And then it just got worse and worse and worse. And I'd I'd say it to people and they'd look at me like I was crazy. Yeah, come on, man. People can't do that sort of thing. And it got worse and worse and worse. And and I just got off social media at one point. 
just got sick of it. I literally could not stand seeing sanitised version of what was really going on, appearing everywhere. So, but that was also another good part about the lockdown, getting back to being a real person and having a real life and not worrying about social media. It was never really a consuming thing for me. From a personal point of view, running a business, you care about what you see on social media. So it was never addictive for me, but still getting away from it and not seeing the fights on social media was a very healthy thing. Yeah. There have been a few changes recently. We might see things evening up a little bit, but it's going to take time. It's going to take a long time to heal the wounds that were inflicted on economies all over the globe if we ever move away. Might be the birth of something great and new as well. We just have to see. We can only hope. I think we have to be positive. Other great thing about having parents who went through a Holocaust was they um, didn't lose hope and poking fun, the Nazis kept a lot of people alive. And I think you've got to poke fun at things that are happening around you. Humour is one of the ultimate weapons against tyranny. I think the more funny memes and the more we poke fun at what's going on and make people aware of it by making fun of it, the better. I think as community we need to be united. And we need to be able to talk about anything and make fun of anything without being censored. Okay, let's get back on to drumming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I realise that you're a drum teacher, but if you could only offer one tip to a brand new drummer, what would it be? Practice and be aware of as many styles as you possibly can be. Excellent. I could elaborate on that indefinitely. I think having an open mind to music is a really important thing. Jim Bailey opened me up to jazz and fusion and styles of music that I would never have listened to. Strangely enough, I was aware of a lot of styles. I mean, anyone who grew up with the Bugs Bunny show grew up with incredible music. As I said, TV things were a big thing back then, many, many years ago. They're big now. There were less TV shows and we were concentrated into five or so channels on TV. So you became intimately aware of the theme music to every show. So being aware of all styles of music and not having any prejudice is a very important thing. I've learned as much from my young students as I have from some of the most seasoned professionals in my career because kids are open-minded. When something new comes along, the worst thing that you can possibly do is rag it before you've had a piece or can something because it doesn't fit into the way you live. I hate it when people say things like, I hate dance music. If you don't dance, then you don't know anything about dance music. It's really that simple. Crazy to be closed-minded in that way. Definitely. Who are your top three local drummers? Top three local drummers? Victoria, yeah. Victoria, that's a tricky question. I mean, I was spoiled at Drum Tech because suddenly I was teaching on the same floor right next door to my idols, Graham Morgan from the Don Lane show. I used to watch Graham Morgan. I used to lie on my stomach and watch Graham Morgan with my mum and dad, watch him on the Don Lane show. Just, just turn around and go, my God, that guy's just incredible. And I got to teach drums next door to him. So I'd have to say Graham Morgan. I think one of the undiscovered greats in Australia is Alex Deegan. Alex Deegan's a great friend of mine. He's a, one of my very favourite drummers. He's an absolutely spectacular drummer from Adelaide and he lives in Melbourne. And there's so many. It's really a terribly unfair question. It is. Another inspiring, look, I'm going to say Frank Corneola. Frank Corneola's an educator and a drummer. I'm going to say Frank Corneola because of the fact that he's such an all-rounder. So he's been a great influence on me. He's a favourite drum person. Okay, John, I want you to choose the three most important to you from the following five. So we have groove, creativity, chop, technique and time. Out of those five, which three are most important to you as a drummer? 
All right, that's kind of a trick question because I think mm-hmm. they all are. My answer is that you can't really separate three and say that they're the most important. This is my opinion. I think you have to look at music holistically. Every part of music is as important as every other part. We really can't separate styles that are more important, really can't separate. Uh, you've just mentioned like the building blocks of music, can't separate any of those building blocks to me. I think they're all equally important. Is that a fair answer? Yeah. If you could invite any musicians to play a concert with you anywhere in the world, you're on the kit, who would you call, where would it be held and what genre would the band be performing? Wow, that's a, that's a crazy question. I think, oh, gee, Liz, I think I'd, just because of all of the magnificent musical experiences that I had with my great friend Rob Pippen, I think it would have to be a gig playing some kind of hard rock somewhere in the US, maybe, you know, LA or New York. So a big concert somewhere in Los Angeles, maybe someone like Graham Bonnet. Is that a good answer? Yeah, awesome. That wasn't that hard after all, was it? No, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Is there something that you've really tried to play that you couldn't get right or you weren't satisfied with the way that you played it? That I couldn't play it? Yeah, there's lots of them. When I took lessons with Jim, Jim tried to plough us through as many styles as possible. So there was swing jazz, for example. Now, I spent a lot of time ploughing through books, trying to master the style. You never really master anything, but trying to get the basics of the style down. And it was very difficult. You know, wanting to go into the world of commercial music probably didn't really make that much difference. And so I would say that swing and a lot of the harder core technical styles, a lot of fusion that involves a lot of high-end chops and very deep understanding of odd time signatures, blah, blah, blah. I would say that that's where all of my difficulties are. But unfortunately, I don't have to play that style of music or those styles. Yeah, great. How many bands and projects are you currently involved with on a regular basis? At the moment, it's really quiet. Most of the gigs I'm, I'm doing now are with Damon Stone. So that's the band, uh, The Internationals, which is a cover band, and Stone, which is the original band. We haven't done a gig for a while with Stone. We did a few gigs recently with The Internationals. The core of the internationals is Damon and myself, but we get in a hot guitar player to make up the three for quite a while now. Jimmy Hocking, the blues legend, has been our guitar player, but we've had quite a few famous guys in the band. I think if the restrictions that we were talking about earlier release and there is an explosion in live entertainment, I think the gig situation will increase pretty dramatically. That's it for now, and it's really pointless chasing up any because of that, the current situation. Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? That's a really good question. I've been thinking about that a lot, particularly after you called to do the interview. I've been a real old guy the last while, just enjoying peace and quiet and walking around with my dogs and contemplating life. As I mentioned, I was very, very lucky to be surrounded by amazing drummers, when I was growing up with Jim Bailey, all of the, the other students that were in my class that were older than me influenced me incredibly. I love those guys. And all of the musicians at Drum Tech, Graham Morgan, all of the other teachers there, heavily influenced by amazing people. I've been very lucky. And I was lucky enough to interview Graham Morgan for Drum Scene magazine. And Graham said a very interesting thing that stuck with me for a long time. Interviewing Graham was like interviewing God. It was incredible. He had a hip placement. He would come into drum tech. He could barely walk. And I thought, oh, God, because I need a knee replacement and probably both shoulders reconstructed eventually. My knees are the worst. 
So I was very interested to know how Graham dealt with his hip replacement. Mentioned how long this hip problem was going on for. And I actually saw him play a gig when his hip was at its worst. And he was, he blew my face off. That's the incredible thing about Graham, 80 something, and plays like a 25 year old. Anyway, I said, when do you reckon you pack it in, Graham? And he said, I'll pack it in if I roll up to a gig one day and I can't play things right. It was a more elaborate answer than that. That was the bottom line. So I'm 60 this year and Graham was around 80 at that point. I've had a lot of time to get myself together physically and mentally in the last couple of years. I've got a very positive outlook. And I feel that um, this is the beginning of another very positive chapter for me. I feel great physically and I don't know entirely what's going to happen, but I feel really positive about the future. I'm ready to plough headlong into more gigs with Damon and other new original projects. I absolutely love recording music. I love electronic drums and I've got my own home studio. Everyone's got their own home studio. I've had one for decades and I've had V drums for decades. So I'm really looking forward to the future. I'm hoping there are a few philanthropic endeavours that I got involved with a few years back when I started smelling the big financial collapse. And I'm hoping that my investment back then pays off and that things improve economically in the world and that we have another great period of growth economically, which would then, of course, will mean a great period of growth for music and entertainment and being good human beings. We can't develop the arts if we can't feed ourselves, you know. So I've got a very positive outlook in the future, practising a lot more than I ever have just recently, and I'm developing new skills. So I don't know, maybe I'll release a new album in the future. I write which is something I never used to do back in the old days. So I've written a lot of songs, so I hope to record and release a bunch of those. I look forward to maybe 20 more years. Graham seems to have done it. Um, If I'm not afflicted by some sort of disease or whatever, I hope to see another 20 or 30 more years of being in music and maybe following my heart a bit more than I did when I was younger because I'm older and wiser. Not following the money as much, I think. Awesome. What do you hope to have achieved before you lay down the sticks for the last time? I hope to achieve a happy life in music. I hope that that happiness, my dad was a very happy guy and he affected everybody around him with his happy life and his ability to accept everything. That's one thing I want, to influence people to pursue happiness. Wonderful. Before we end our chat today, I'm going to ask John 20 quick random questions or as many as we can get through in the space of two minutes to close the interview. Are you ready, John? Yes, I'm ready. Your time starts now. What was the first concert that you went to? Uh, Daly Wilson Big Band Adelaide Festival Theatre. Who was the leader of International Rescue? Um, Tracy, um, Tracy was the dad. That was the Tracy family. Jeff Tracy. Jeff Tracy, yep. What was the first album that you purchased? Uh, uh, Bobby Dazzler, which was a compilation album. Which prehistoric sea monster was awakened and empowered by nuclear radiation? Godzilla. Correct. Name a band you wish you'd seen perform live. Um, Earth, Wind and Fire. The most sticks that you've dropped during a gig? Oh, God. Five, six, easily, maybe more. Which Star Trek captain has an artificial heart? Um, 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I love Star Trek. Uh, I'm going to have to pass. I can't remember. Picard. Name your favourite essay venue. Um, that's a hard question, but I'll say the convention centre. What was the first single that you bought? Ooh. Uh, Peppermint Twist by The Sweet. What was the last concert that you went to? Um, oh, I have to pass on that one. I can't remember. When NBC rejected the pilot for Star Trek, which famous comedian got them to take another look? Um, oh, pass. Lucille Ball. Vinyl or CDs? Um, I think CD, just for the convenience. Your favourite song to play? Uh, I don't have a favourite song to play. I've got hundreds of favourite songs. Your favourite international drummer? Uh, same thing. I don't have a favourite there. I've got hundreds of favourites. We're out of time. <laughs> oh, that was pretty easy. I thought it was going to be a disaster. <laughs> Thank you once again, John, for joining me for the Banded About podcast today. You've been great to chat to and I hope that everyone who listens finds this as enjoyable as I did. Thank you very much, Di. It was absolute great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. All of the information and links relating to today's interview can be found in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please follow the Banded About podcast series on your preferred podcast listening platform. Until next week, it's goodbye from me, Dice Belaine, Banded About, proudly supporting live music. Bye. Bye.